right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Yin and Yang podcast. I am your host, Riley Sloat. Today, we have Noe Kalfa joining us. He is the co-founder and CEO of Worth of Journey, a business coaching and marketing agency for conscious businesses, and is in the middle of completing a 90-day money challenge where he questions one belief about money every day. Noe, glad to have you here. Thanks for coming on to share your story with us. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. It's it's been a really interesting journey and I'm I'm so glad I get to come and share about it. Well, thank you. I'm really excited to have you on here. You've been doing lots of work, so let's just dive right into that and everything that you've been up to. Sounds good. I have one big question for you, and that is why do you think people want to hear about the story of Noe Kalfa? That is a big question, uh, and I will try to answer it here. So when you ask that question, what jumps up to me is that I feel like I'm basically three things mashed into one person, and the three things are a super nerd. You know, I'm into Star Trek and Star Wars and all the nerdiest things. Uh, I'm an entrepreneur, a business owner, so that's the second big one. And then the third one is spirituality. So I'm really spiritual. I've been practicing meditation and yoga for about 10 years now and and Buddhist. And so I sort of am a combination of all of those things. And it's starting to really take form into a body of work that connects spirituality and business especially. And then I just always have a nerdy flavor to whatever I do. Can't help it. So when did you kind of get started with your business journey? Is this something that started from childhood? Did you get into it in your, you know, early adult life? You know, I wish I'd started in childhood. I feel like I would have overcome a lot of those early obstacles much uh, earlier in my life. But actually, I graduated from uh, University of Washington in computer science. So I was a computer science guy and went right into Microsoft after graduating. So I was just right in the software world. And it took me about two and a half years to realize that my soul was slowly withering away in this uh, corporate job that just wasn't feeding me at all. And I had also started to get into spirituality and the that combination led me to to leave. And I'm the kind of person who just jumps into the swimming pool and starts flapping around. And that's how I learned how to swim. So I left that Microsoft job without knowing what I was going to do. I just knew that I had to leave, and uh, which I don't always recommend people do. Uh, but I ended up teaching yoga because that's the only other thing that I knew how to do at that time. And that led me into working for myself. I started doing lots of trainings around uh, how to run a business. And then eventually I started teaching everything I've learned and that's how I got into doing the business coaching work. And then I started an agency to help with all the things that people need when launching or growing a business, like web design, graphic design, virtual assistants, and all that stuff. So if we kind of go back, you had mentioned that you started with yoga, like entrepreneurship essentially started with yoga. Uh-huh. So let's go back to that moment. What gave you the confidence and the ability to take that step and say, you know what, I can do this, I can make money off of it, and then take that first step? Well, it actually started on a meditation retreat. 
I was on a 14 day meditation retreat and on about halfway through about day seven, I was walking back at like 10 PM from the, the meditation hall and I was the last person to leave and I, it was snowing. It was over a Christmas break. And I remember literally stepping through the snow, hearing that crunch, crunch, crunch. And then one of my footsteps lands and I just heard this like very loud voice that just said, it's time. And I looked around. I literally looked around. I was freaked out. I was like, what's going on? I looked around. There's nobody there. It was completely dead silent. And something had hit me that just being for seven days in that much stillness made my inner voice so loud. And it was just telling me that it's time. It's time to leave Microsoft and and make a leap. So I wouldn't say that I was very informed in knowing what I was doing or how I was doing it. That all came later. Uh, very much a fail forward kind of model. <laughs> I think that's mm-hmm. uh, that's just how I work. Is lots of failure to get to the successes. Uh, but yeah, that's how I started. That's so crazy. And a lot of people have those types of experiences where they just get this unexplainable direction <laughs> telling them like, this is what you need to do now. For me, I've never really had that, you know, big moment in life. It always kind of, I always knew that entrepreneurship is what I wanted to do from a very young age. So for me, it did start mm-hmm. in childhood. And I observed my dad, he was an entrepreneur, my grandpa was an entrepreneur. And so it it kind of ran in the family, I guess. We just had this blood for entrepreneurship. Um, But I'm always so curious to know, you know, what, what got people to that point? Because there are a lot of people out there who struggle with making that leap who struggle with leaving Mm -hmm. their day job, the comforts of their day job, and going in and uh, into a world of uncertainty. What would you say the strengths are that kind of carried you through? Like things that you were just born with or had naturally developed that really got you to succeed on your own? That's a great question. I think the biggest strength that I have is that I'm I'm ridiculously determined. Like once I set my mind on something, it's really, really hard to stop me or slow me down. Like I I just go very quickly and I hit it really hard. Now that definitely has its own dark side in, in terms of burning out, but it's an incredible gift as an entrepreneur because it's it can be really challenging. There are dark moments. There are moments when you know, if, if you work with clients, nobody shows up. If you work with customers, nobody's buying stuff. And those moments can be really hard to get through, but every moment is a learning opportunity. And that's like just really taking life that way is what has gotten me through the darkest moments so that at this point, it just feels like it's like there are lots of failures and lots of successes all happening at the same time. And I just keep planting seeds and growing trees and planting seeds and growing trees. And some of them don't grow and and that's okay. But I think the biggest thing is is staying determined to to whatever as if I'm offering advice, it would be to to like stay determined to what you feel is the right path. Even if you don't know specifically what it is yet, you'll figure it out. You don't have to have the perfect vision to figure it out. I certainly didn't. I started out teaching yoga, and now I advise people on their businesses. Uh, so I've gone through lots of shifts. Yeah. yeah. 
So you kind of talked about um, failing forward and it sounds like you've had to really take on that resilience characteristic. Was that something that you had to develop or was that something that was already instilled in you? That was already instilled in me. Um, I think I've always been that way. Uh, Astrologically, I've got some Taurus, some big Taurus in my my chart, if you're so astrologically inclined. (laughs) Taurus Um, moon. (laughs) Yeah, I've got sun and moon in Taurus. You also have Taurus moon? I have Taurus moon, yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, you do have a very kind of soothing presence. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah, (laughs) totally. Um, but yeah, I think that, that I, I just have this, uh, I mean, maybe it's a a fear of like really, really failing, uh, enough that I really just keep going and keep going, keep creating. But I think it's also like, um, like inspiration is, is the most, uh, desirable experience for me, like it, like being inspired. So that's helped me reach out to other people and build all these connections and networks that have gotten me to where I am. Uh, so yeah, I think that's been going on for a long time for me. Are there any other weaknesses or are there any weaknesses that you feel like you've had to develop over the course of your journey in entrepreneurship? Are there other weaknesses I have to develop? Yeah. Like, have you had to develop, you know, any type of insecurity or, you know, kind of transform who you are? Cause you come to the table with all of these strengths, you have determination, ambition, resilience, you know? So are there weaknesses that you feel like you've had to develop over the years as you kind of continued on with your journey? I see. You mean like, um, like, have I had to like struggle through these weaknesses to, to transform them? Oh yeah. Oh, totally. <laughs> um, I mean, the first image that pops into my mind is that first yoga business that I started. Uh, and right when I left Microsoft, I, I went on my own and decided, you know what, I'm just going to start my own little yoga studio. And, uh, just, it was about one week where nobody showed up day after day, after day, after day, after day, until I finally melted down and just had like a come to Jesus moment of like, you know, screaming on the floor, why me? And, you know, looking up at the heavens and then just realizing that it's just me in a room, uh, you know, shouting and crying. And, um, but then I realized that, that I would be okay in that. So it's like, I feel like each of, each of the weaknesses, like not knowing anything about marketing, right? Not, not having an understanding of how, the psychology of buying works. Each of those things has been just just taking experience, taking lessons from other people, doing research. Uh, in terms of qualities, like weakness qualities, I think one of the big things I realized early on is that uh, as humbling as it is, I wasn't really a good leader. Hmm. That I was pretty controlling and just wanted people to do things my way. And I realized that was a, a really important early on lesson. And I kind of got ahead of that lesson a little bit uh, by studying the, the works of uh, Simon Sinek. He's got tons of videos and books and so on. Uh, he's got so much stuff on leadership uh, that it, it dove me into, like, how do you treat people who work with you, employees, collaborators? You know, How do you inspire people to uh, 
to not just work with you or work for you, but to become part of a team and to to really feel like they're part of a team. That has invaluably helped me. Uh, but yeah, I was I was pretty darn controlling and you know everything in my way is perfect and all of that. <laughs> Let's just face it: there are good leaders and there are bad leaders, and I think a sense of needing control is something that a lot of leaders struggle with. But you also, uh-huh. you know, it's your baby when you're an entrepreneur. And you're scaling your business and you're starting from scratch and you are you have all the liability. You're putting in all the money. You've put in all the work and you start building that out and you start building out your team. It is really hard to transition out of that control and give it over to other people. Do you have any advice as to, I mean, it sounds like you know, you have some people that you kind of look up to in that sense, but do you have any advice for somebody who may be in that transition of scaling their business and how do you let go and start delegating responsibilities? Absolutely. Yeah. I think the biggest thing is to be really clear with where you're giving something away, why you're giving it away and, and how you're giving it away. So I, I, and I've made mistakes on all sides of it. Like I've given away too much and that's really come and, and, you know, bit me in the ass. Uh, but, oh wait, can I say ass? You can say ass. <laughs> you, you can cut that out if <laughs> that's inappropriate. Um, We're open-minded here. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> um. So like one of the early people I started working with was a designer because I realized that my design skills were pretty bad, but I needed to get a website up. I needed to get some posters made and flyers and postcards and all those kinds of things. So I realized, okay, it's a good idea for me to bring on a designer. And it was a friend of mine who needed some work. So, uh, so I started working with her and what I realized is that she would give me designs and I would start then tweaking them or like, or overly critiquing them to the point where it was almost not worth her being there because Mm -hmm. I kept going into like, Oh no, but I want it to look like this. And this is what it looked like in my mind that like hyper-focused, uh, like super micromanagey. And I realized that that was a thing I could totally give up. Like if I know very clearly, I want this person to do this task or to own this area, like design, then what I need to do is really give that up. Like, yes, it's really important for me as the entrepreneur and for anyone who's the entrepreneur to to understand every team that you have or every category of work that you have, whether it's marketing, design, uh, sales, et cetera. But to, to really turn it over to the expert will change your life. It, it really, like, as soon as I started letting go of control, the design started looking great. They all looked cohesive because they were coming through that person's genius. And she felt really great about her contribution because she wasn't just being uh, tweaked all the time into something that wasn't her own uh, production. So it was empowering for her to own that area. And it was really relieving for me to let it go. But if you try to uh, like um, some a mistake that I made pretty early on was 
taking on a business partner because I was afraid that I couldn't run the business myself. And making a choice like that out of fear was a really bad idea that has cost me lots of money and lots of time and lots of effort. Yeah, let's dive into that because partnerships are interesting and complicated and complex. And when I started my first, well, not my first business, my um, first e-commerce store, People Preach, I went into a partnership with um, one of my best friends from high school and it was great. I can't complain. We have always gotten along. We've always had a great relationship but I was warned by my dad. I was warned by my brother. I was warned by other connections that I had who were entrepreneurs. Don't go into business with a partner. At the same time, I knew that I didn't know everything. And I think that's another balancing Uh act as an entrepreneur because you want to know everything. I want to know everything about everything and I want to be in control of everything. But at the same time, you only have so much capacity and you may not be good at something. So for instance, I love design, but I'm not necessarily good at design. (laughs) And so I knew that. And I also didn't have the capacity to learn those skills unless I wanted to push back, you know, the launch of this business. And my partner had a heavy design background and a sourcing background. And so, you know, I just Mm kind of had her handle that. I feel like for us, we, you know, failed easy in the sense that, uh, you know, she got pregnant with twins. We went our separate ways with the business. It wasn't really working out. We both knew it and we're still really good friends today, but there are people who get screwed over so bad mm-hmm. <laughs> with partnerships. Mm-hmm. And so I'm kind of curious to know what your story is and what your experience is with a partnership. Would you ever do it again? You know, it's such a good question. I I think after, let's see, it's been about four to five years um, that I was in this partnership. Would I do it again? Yes. But but first I'll go back to a little bit about how it went. What it seemed like at the beginning was that uh, this person and I were very compatible in that we filled in a lot of gaps. Like I was more introverted, they were more extroverted. they were going to be doing a lot more of the marketing and networking, and I would be doing more of the systems and the technology and building the content. And then they really didn't take off in the same way that I took off within the realms that I was owning. And so then it sort of ended up where we were both doing the same kinds of work. So the original expectations didn't actually pan out, uh, which created more resentment and then it created like questions about, well, how much time are people spending in the business? And are, are we all focusing on the right things? And we would spend long times having meetings uh, that weren't super productive because we would be uh, trying to both do the same projects. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like it wasn't as divided as it could have been. And uh, I'm really lucky that that it's a friend of mine who we're still good friends, and uh, and it sort of ended with us realizing that we needed to go separate ways. Uh, so not not a very painful one, but I have I have friends who have been through really painful uh, business <laughs> partnership breakups. Yeah, same. And I'm just so grateful that that wasn't my experience. And you know, for me, I I kind of realize if I were to take on another partner again they would either need to have 10 times more money than me 
<laughs> or <laughs> they would need to have 10x the experience that I do. You know, mm. it can't just be somebody who kind of fills in the gaps. That's more of a position for either contracted work or um, an employee. So I kind of looked at mm-hmm. it in a different way of like, how do you actually gain value out of partnership? How do you ensure that they're also helping grow the business with their skill set and, you know, kind of help feed off of each other? But ooh, it's a complicated one. Totally. Yeah, I feel like both the, the skill level and the enthusiasm mm-hmm. and the like commitment level have to be matched. That was the big, a big one for me was realizing that we had different levels of inspiration and enthusiasm about what we wanted to do. And so if I was to do it again, I think I, I would under the right circumstances, but uh, I've been thinking about it like um, like when you're in high school and you have a relationship, you have no idea what you're doing and you're just kind of jumping into something. And then eventually, as you go through different relationships, you start to learn about communication, you learn about your emotions, you learn about all those things that make a relationship healthy. And so I feel like now I'm, I would be going into it with so much more understanding and uh, an ability to communicate and ability to set really clear expectations and, yeah. and all of that. Yeah. yeah. Well, that kind of brings us to um, self-awareness <laughs> and kind of, okay, let's do kind it. of the self-development and self-discovery journey. So, you know, simple question here. When was the first time that you can recall becoming self-aware? Yeah, uh, it was, this was in college. In my junior year of college, I was taking a philosophy class and I always considered myself a philosopher, sort of somebody who liked to talk about ideas and dive down rabbit holes with people. But I remember reading a particularly dense book called The Consolation of Philosophy by a fifth century Christian philosopher called Boethius, right? It's like even the name is like pretty dense. Um, And we're reading this book in class and it's about this guy who was the advisor to the emperor and he was at like the highest peak of wealth and success and everything. And then he lost everything because some of the other advisors got jealous and basically plotted to take him down. He was sentenced to death. He lost everything. Uh, He lost his respect, his family, his money. And so that's where the book starts. And then it starts uh, with a conversation that he's having with the figure of philosophy uh, or like, I don't know, the, you could think of it as God or something like that. And this figure is telling him that even though he's lost everything, he has everything he needs to be happy. And so it's this interesting conversation. And I remember reading it once through this class and I didn't really understand it. And so I just kind of put it in the category of books that are sort of too mind numbing for me to actually comprehend. (laughs) And then I remember having a conversation in the class with somebody else. And I was like, wait, how did you get all those insights out of this book? So I went back and reread it. And then all of a sudden something changed where I felt like the book was talking to me for the first time, like across 2,500 years like Boethius was speaking right to me and he was like, Noe, you can be happy in any moment. And it's this like very like logical philosophy, step-by-step kind of process to prove that. 
and my mind is very logical and you know I graduated from computer science and physics and so I have that kind of thought process but it was like the first time that I actually went through these steps of questioning can I be happy in any moment like what's stopping me and so as soon as I realized this book was talking to me it initiated me on this journey of of just really looking at my mind and and questioning my life how long did it take you for you to sign up for like your first course or get a mentor or a therapist in this type of work? So there was a teacher of that course, uh, that, that class in college, uh, that teacher I followed to a couple more classes, but, uh, but it really took me about a year to then pick up my first Buddhist book. As soon as I did that, I started researching meditation centers. And then I found one in Seattle, which is where I live. And uh, after trying out a couple of different places, because they all have their own different flavors, I wasn't really into any places that were super guru-driven. I was more into a place that seemed like it just had a rigorous um, study aspect. Yeah. Because that's what I was into. Um, but yeah, it took me about a year to to start doing that. But then I like dove all the way in. I was spending about three years of every weekend I could possibly spend doing a meditation retreat. I was put like all of my expendable income into meditation retreats. It was wild. <laughs> I feel like I'm like at that point right now. <laughs> so uh-huh. <laughs> where it's like, you get to that point, you, you become aware and you kind of try and rough it yourself and you're going in through the weeds and like uh-huh. you're kind of getting pulled in all these different directions. And I feel like there's a lot of misperception too. Like for instance, the law of attraction, you know, Oh, you can uh-huh. get into existence. This is what manifesting is. And I remember looking at that and being like, this is bogus. Like, this is some bullshit. You cannot just talk about Uh it and have it come. And it wasn't until Susie's course, actually. So backstory here, me and Noe uh, are both in a course with Susie Batiz, the Alive OS. And that is how we met. Um, But she had mentioned, she was like, you know, there is a piece missing here. And that piece is action. And I was like, Yes, somebody just filled in the piece because you cannot just speak it out into existence. It's great to become aware of what you want. It's great to write down what you want, but you have to have a plan and you have to actively be working towards that. And if you continue to stay focused mm-hmm. and driven and determined and, you know, consistent in your work towards that, absolutely it'll manifest, you know? It's all that vibrational energy and what goes out comes back in. And so Anyway, (laughs) that was a little bit of a tangent, but kind of going in and trying to navigate that yourself without any additional context or somebody kind of guiding you along the way can really be confusing and a little overwhelming at first too, because it's like not necessarily clicking. Uh Uh-huh. Oh yeah. I spent about two years uh, trying to figure out what my life purpose was by trying to manifest it or trying to just sit and wait for it to arrive from the heavens above. And it wasn't until I gave that up that I started actually finding purpose in things that I was doing. And it was a really interesting shift, but it was it was about two years on the nose of almost every week I was writing in my journal, like, well, what is my purpose? And if I just find my purpose and then, you know, then I'll finally know what I'm meant to do. But that was, 
I was spending way too much time in that ethereal realm. Yeah. And wasn't actually trying things on. And that's where I started to figure out what I really like to do was through trying things and then seeing, okay, well, that doesn't work or this doesn't work or, okay, I like to teach yoga, but just a little bit on the side. What I really love to do is work with people and their businesses. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. kind of like shed and, and made pivots, you know, along the way. And it it's like that all mm-hmm. the time. We talk about kind of shedding our old selves and you you know, whether that's somebody new that you meet or something that you come across, like you're always constantly changing directions. And I think that's something Uh that is valuable to understand as an entrepreneur is, you know, it's all temporary, like have fun with it. Try this, try that, whatever sparks your interest, go for it. And just if like, who cares, you know, because it may not even last anyway, hundred percent dedicated to it. And in a couple of years think I'm not actually happy doing this. I want to, you know, try something else. So this whole like life purpose thing of trying to figure out, you need to have that figured out right here, right now. This is what you're going to do for the next 60 years. Like <laughs> off of that, you know, just go move, uh-huh. make a move towards something that you enjoy doing and see where it takes you. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd say like, do, do those bad ideas that you have or those ideas you don't know, you don't know what, what they're going to turn out to be. Like, you know, follow the, the most informed bad ideas you have, <laughs> and then you'll find the good ideas. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So many bad ideas too. <laughs> like so many. And so many good ones that are just executed badly. You know, that's how I, that's how I feel uh-huh. people preach was is it was a good idea, but it wasn't really in alignment with who I was. And I don't think that it was executed in the best way possible. You know, and now when you're in it, you don't see that. But when you're kind of step out of it and you go back to look at, okay, where did I slip up? How could we have done this better? What did I learn? You start to see like at least for me, I was like, oh, we did it backwards. <laughs> you know, mm. we went really broad at first with instead of going really targeted at first and then scaling out. And that's like a classic mistake. But when I was in it, I was so frustrated that it wasn't working out. There's just so many lessons to learn, you know, in that trial and error. Yeah. So what brought you to Susie? Kind of fill us in in that story. Oh gosh, yeah. Susie Batiz and I met at uh let's see, Susie Batiz and I met at a Hendrix training. So we both studied for about two and a half years. She may have studied for three years with Gay and Katie Hendrix, who are a couple that do life coaching work and they're both therapists. And uh it's it's like a whole body of life coaching work that's somatic oriented. So lots of breathing and moving to transform any kind of issue, whether it's about money or about relationships or about purpose or work. And we both dove into a two plus year training together where like at least one to two weekends a month, we were flying somewhere to go to a training there was an online component and it was just very intense study. So we spent a long time basically uh, seeing each other's total vulnerable spots and dark sides. And uh, I remember meeting Susie and she was just like a, 
kind of a, a an excited, enthusiastic participant. And then I overheard her and somebody talking about, you know, 100 million this and something that. And I was like, wait, who is this person? <laughs> and then it turns out that she created Poopery and, uh, you know, really made a big success with that. Uh, and so then we we followed up with each other and just sort of kept kept in touch. And, and I circled back with her around this a live course that she was doing because she has just been doing so much spiritual training work mm-hmm. is what I think of it as. And, uh, and she's a person who I admire and, uh, I feel like that's kind of my path as well. It's like my, my deepest path is spirituality. And then the business work is sort of a part of that and, uh, and everything else I do sort of comes, comes along with that. Yeah. But yeah, that, that's why I met Susie. So she just got done with her second alive course, um, which is the one that I was, uh, I attended. Did you do her first one? I didn't do the first course with other people, but as she was writing it, she was sending me the like raw documents okay, uh, with the lessons. So that was, that was how I got connected with the courses specifically is I'd asked her for some mentorship and, and she decided to send me the, the lessons as she was writing them. Yeah. yeah. Well, we both graduated a live OS. <laughs> Yeah. Congratulations to us. High fives all around. (laughs) Um, And now we're in a live abundance. So live abundance is this new course that she put together specifically for diving into your beliefs about money and, and flipping those beliefs and creating new ones and, you know, putting action steps in place to support those new beliefs, which has led you to the 90 day money challenge. Can you kind of just elaborate on what that is? You have a podcast, you know, about it. Just tell us everything about this 90-day money challenge. Yeah, absolutely. So at the beginning, uh, just before the Alive Abundance course started, I had a conversation with Susie because we were talking about the work of Byron Katie, which is a kind of meditative inquiry form that we we both studied, and uh, and talking about money. And she did the work of Byron Katie on a money topic. She basically, basically, she questioned her thinking about money for six months before she came up with the idea for poop, for poopery. And so she challenged me to do it for three months, at least three months, of doing every day doing the work on Byron of Byron Katie on money, and uh, so that's what I started doing. Like that's that determination is. I'm like, okay, Susie, like you made hundreds of millions of dollars after doing this for six months. Like, sure, I'll give it a try. See if it works for me. Uh, <laughs> and it's just been the the most interesting process. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, we're crossing our fingers for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, interestingly, as I've been going through the journey, I, I actually just a few days ago uh, did the work on the thought I want to be wealthy. And what I found is that that whole desire, the desire to make millions is rooted in fear and is a big piece that holds me back from really seeing how much I already have, which is the whole point of having stuff is to have it, right? But it's so easy to forget that in the wanting more. Right. So what is the fear that's driving that belief of I want to be wealthy? 
You know, I think the fear is I, I'll never be able to relax. I'll never be able to stop and rest. And it's, it's so perpetuated by our society and it's so perpetuated by our parents and their, their society and their parents and you know, the world that, that our whole lineage has grown up in is really about the factory model. It's about doing more work and more work and how much more can we crank out and can we, you know, turn up the dial a little bit more and can we push ourselves a little bit more? And so we've been, we were born into this system that was already running uh, and school was like that, you know, you just yeah. are over overloaded with homework from day one. And then as soon as you leave, same thing happens at work, you know, and, and so many people in corporate jobs are working 60 to 80 hours a week, especially in startups. Yeah. Uh, if you're part of a, a, a small team startup, like I had uh, one of my friends when I was working at Microsoft, she was working 80 plus hours a week. She just slept mostly in, in her office such a such a horrible condition like mentally it does a number on you mm -hmm. so i think just generations of people who are trying to push productivity and try to push their way to to finally relax has created in each of us this sort of addiction cycle Absolutely. To, to pushing harder. Well, and yeah. that feeling like there's never enough or you're not good enough because you haven't achieved this, you know, more <laughs> that you're chasing. It's always more, more, more. Well, if it's always more, then you're never going to achieve more. You spend a yep. lifetime chasing something else instead of, like you said, the point of having things is to have things, you know, just slow down and take a look at what you have what you have gained, mm -hmm. you know, from pushing for, you know, the last 30 years. This is kind of exactly kind of interesting. And so when you you use the work of Byron Katie to process to uh flip these beliefs and replace it with a new one, can you go into detail about what exactly that looks like? Yeah. So the work of Byron Katie is just a set of questions that Byron Katie came up with that um and it's, it's a meditation practice. So what I do every morning is I sit down and I have my little notepad, have a list of questions, and I take a thought. So let's see, what's a recent thought that I did? Um, well, I can go with, I want to be wealthy, right? Because that's a, a frequent thought that comes up. So I'll take that thought and then there are four questions to ask. Is it true? And then if you answer, yes, it is true. Uh, yeah, of course, I want to be wealthy. Well, then you ask, can you absolutely know that it's true? Well, can I absolutely know that it's true that, that I want to be wealthy, that wealth is what I want? It's like taking a little bit of a zoomed in look. And then maybe I'll realize, oh, it's not actually wealth that I want. Like if I die tomorrow, what am I going to do with money? Nothing, right? So it's not actually the wealth that I want. It's all the things that I think wealth will give me that I want. So you start to like zoom in and get like really refined look at what you're actually thinking and what you're actually believing. And that's, that's where it starts to get pretty out of control. Because the next piece is asking this thought, I want to be wealthy. What happens when I believe it? What, how do I start to act when I believe that I want to be wealthy? Well, I start pushing myself. 
I start treating other people like they're in my way or their competition. I start treating myself like I'm always a failure because I'm never wealthy enough. All of this stuff comes out of these beliefs and we treat ourselves horribly and we treat other people horribly. Even if it's just in our minds, we, you know, we're suffering. Right. So then the fourth, the fourth question is, well, who would you be free of that story, free of that belief? And so you just look at your life and you look at the situations that you have the belief in. And so what I did the other morning was I literally looked around like I want to be wealthy. And I looked around and I saw, oh, I am wealthy. Like I've created a life that's really abundant for myself. I mean, as an adult, you can choose to buy things that you like, right? And what I realized in looking around is I was like, oh, I've only bought things that I like. So now I'm surrounded by things that I like. It seems very obvious in one one sense. But yet, because I've held the image in my mind that I'm not wealthy, I've just continually been seeking, oh, I need to be wealthy. I need to be wealthy. And I haven't seen that I've just been doing that the whole time. I've been creating more and more wealth around me the whole time. And so then you can go in and turn the thought around. So Byron Katie has these, these different turnarounds where basically the, the turnaround process is just trying to see if there are other possibilities that are just as true as the, the first thought that you had. So like I need to be, or I, I want to be wealthy. Is it, is it possible that it's just as true that I don't want to be wealthy? And like, how might that be true? And so one, one example of that is that the more money I have, the more complexity and more managing of that money I have to do. And is that something I really want? Do I really want to be managing lots of money and spending like lots of time doing that? No, I don't want to be doing that. I want to be doing things that I love. I want to be connecting with people that I love. Uh, I want to be having wonderful experiences. I don't want to be sitting at a computer managing money. Mm-hmm. So there are lots of little examples in in ways that you flip the thought around. Yeah, one of my friends describes it as like, it's like uh, you get like a vice grip on your brain and it just shakes it around in all different directions <laughs> until you start to see things in a different way. Yeah, and you do. Yeah. You have to look at it in different perspectives. You know, you just kind of talked about, oh, well, if I have all of this money, you know, that's a big responsibility. I'm going to have to manage it and all of this stuff. But that kind of maybe goes into another belief that money is a big responsibility. Totally. Well, as as I've been going through the work further and further, I just realized that I know less and less because it's just these stacked stories. Like I, every belief comes with a whole another set of beliefs and they're all sort of spiraling around each other. And every time I undo one, I land back in reality for a moment and then another one will come up and it's just this process of almost like building up muscle strength by working out just like building up mental strength in seeing through oh yeah that's not really true you know all the things i complain about are pretty much not true (laughs) which is very a humbling thing to realize well and i think that's the power of doing this type of work is people are like oh well it's never ending yes but it allows you it gives you the opportunity to be present to actually look at your reality of what it is and to and instead of living in the past or the future or what you have or what you or sorry what you don't have you know it really allows you to just 
look and appreciate puts you into a place of love, abundance, and joy, you know, which is that higher vibration. Uh So if you're practicing this type of work all the time, subconsciously, because of that social conditioning of, you know, we need to work harder, we need to work smarter, we need to be doing this, we need to be doing that, subconsciously, we're not present. And so this Mm-hmm. You know, working through those beliefs, just taking 10 minutes a day to even work through one kind of s- allows you to, you know, come back to reality and, and the present and enjoy what you have. And I think that that goes a longer way, <laughs> you know, than uh-huh. working in those lower vibrations of comparison or shame or insecurity, you know. Totally. And ultimately, after after questioning... 60 something beliefs about money so far. What I realized that I actually want is just to be more present in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And after a few conversations with Susie since I started, you know, as I've been sharing my insights with her, she keeps reflecting back that that's the place that wealth comes from, is from the place of presence, from the place of enough. Mm-hmm. I am enough. I have enough. That wealth comes from that place because it's not being squashed by all of our attempts to get it, which are taking us down different paths away from it. Right. Which is such a, it's such a interesting loophole in our brains. You know, when we start chasing something, we miss all of the other ideas that we would have around us that would take us right to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really interesting process, but you're 60 days in now, right? Or 62? 61? That's right. Today was day 63. 63. I, you're two thirds of the way in. <laughs> I know. It's wild. Yeah. So, so yeah, 90 day challenge, day 63. And uh, yeah, I've got about a month left. How has your external reality tangibly changed since starting the challenge? Well, in the first month, it was really trippy because in the first month, I had the best month of business I've ever had. Mm. So just like financially, I received lots more money in that first month. So I was like, okay, noted, I'm going to keep going. Um, And since then, lots of little things have cleared up, like like my spending habits have cleared up. Like I've always had a, well, I've held this belief that I'm poor for a long time. It's been like since the Great Depression, my family has just sort of passed along this belief. And as I realized that every spending interaction, every purchase that I make is wrapped up in this, I've seen that I either will like be in really like hoarding scarcity mode with money, or I'll be in like splurge mode, like, well, we're done for anyway, so we might as well spend our money. (laughs) Which neither of those are healthy ways to spend money. And so after doing the work again and again and again, and just seeing all the ways that I I tend to spend money or the guilt that I feel or the, the desire and the addiction kind of quality that I feel, I've just started to make better decisions. And so I'm I'm spending money on things only that I actually really really need or want, um, and not spending money on other things. And and I'm I'm able to wait longer. If I'm like, okay, you know, it's like 
Like if I want something and if I was to go full on into the spiritual bypassing realm, I would be like, well, I can now buy anything that I want because, you know, uh, I can just question any belief about money that like, you know, I don't have enough money. Well, I can just question that. Now I do have enough money, right? That's taking it too far. But like what I'll do is if I want something, you know, I'll say, okay, this, you know, costs however much it does. And well, I don't feel comfortable buying that right now, but I'm going to save up for that thing. And it feels very straightforward in a way that I would have never considered before. Uh, so I don't feel rushed about buying things. I don't feel rushed about saving either, on the other hand. I feel like where I am right now is totally fine, and I can always grow into more abundance. But I'm, whereas before, I was constantly stressed about not having enough. I don't have enough in my savings account. I'm spending too much, or I don't have enough stuff, right? I'm spending too much, and I don't have enough stuff are like, two really battling beliefs to have at the same time because then I just I keep spending money and then worrying about spending money so it's like I feel like all of that has softened a little bit and I'm just taking it like day by day moment by moment and so I feel just the world of less stress about money and buying and selling and uh, and all of that yeah that's exactly I mean (laughs) you know, these changes are small, but they add up over time, you know, and I started my self-development journey three years ago and so much has changed, but I feel like the biggest thing is just the perception. And when you change Mm -hmm. your perception on things, your reality changes. It just is like, you know, it's so hard to change your reality without changing your perspective. You can spend and exert so much energy trying to do that. But the minute you change your perspective, it's like, you know, things that used to matter don't matter anymore or things that didn't make sense before all of a sudden make sense now. You know, you're just so much more aware in this new perspective and that perspective can continue to evolve and change. And, you know, naturally your reality just comes with it. It's just really kind of interesting. So you have a podcast. I have a podcast. Yeah. So yeah, for folks who want to follow me, if you want to follow me uh, doing the 90-day challenge, so I'm sharing every day all the insights that I've learned. It's on Instagram in video form. And uh, so you can watch me kind of waving my arms and (laughs) explaining everything that I'm uh, going through each step of the the work of Byron Katie. But I made it into a podcast because I realized that if I was listening to this, I'd probably want to like binge a few episodes at a time in the background when I'm driving or cooking or something. Uh, so now you can go in, it's on Spotify, it's on Apple Podcasts, it's, it's everywhere you can find podcasts. Uh, and it's called the 90 Day Money Challenge. Yeah, and now there's something, I went and looked and there's something like 16 hours of me talking about money, <laughs> which I don't know if that turns you off of listening to the podcast, worst pitch ever, but um <laughs> But there are just tons of beliefs, right? Name a money belief. It's in there. Yeah, well, that's really good because, you know, as you start doing this work, I mean, we are all the same. We have the same beliefs. We process information the same and we, we have the same feelings, the same emotions. And so, you know, when you're doing the work yourself, sometimes you can get caught in areas where you don't really know how to process it. And if I share the uh-huh. same belief about uh, with you about money and now you've already worked through that, you know, I can use that to influence my writing and me reprocessing that belief. So it is really good. I Mm -hmm. to them. I think it's amazing. It's actually um, allowed me to better understand 
that process of flipping a belief, you know, that it's, it is uh-huh. simple, but we can overcomplicate it in our minds sometimes. And, you know, listening to you kind of gives like that little nudge that you need to break through those barriers. So I think it's great. And I'm really happy that you're sharing it too. Honestly, thank you for doing that. Thanks. Yeah, that's that's the intention is just to give you a little nudge of inspiration to do the work for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So what's next? What comes after the challenge? Well, <laughs> yeah, I've thought about it. Do I do another 90-day challenge? Like do I quest do I spend 90 days questioning everything about sex or relationships, right? I've had <laughs> some of my friends are like, "Oh, you got to do this." Um what I think the next thing for me might be is that I actually am partway through writing a book, mm-hmm. a book about how we use our energy and with the premise that we can find unlimited energy. It's a radical idea. Um, and so I've got a set of, it's basically going to be sort of like an exercise book that you can use to, you read it as you're going about uh, for probably about eight weeks, and it gives you tools to reflect on how you're using your energy, what zones of energy you're, you know, if you're too much in the output, too much in the input, um, if there are different activities that you could be adding to bring you more energy. Um, it's the, just such a fascinating area for me of like, how do I, how do I become more like Da Vinci in a way, right? Okay. Where he created just an incredible amount of stuff. Um, but he did have a really intense sleep pattern of sleeping something like 20 minutes every two hours, which I'm not into that. Uh, so what are the other ways that I can gain lots of energy in my life? That sounds like a habit I need to acquire. <laughs> <laughs> right. Sleeping. sleeping is the best. My best ideas come from sleeping. <laughs> totally. I love sleep. Yeah. Um, so when is that book going to be done? Do you have like an estimated time frame, or? You know, I don't, I've never written a book before. So this will be my first one. Uh, I've done a lot of writing, but I haven't written a full book. Uh, so I'm, I'm giving myself a year to get it completely polished and published and everything, hopefully less time than that. But, but honestly, I, I tend to go down so many different pathways as I'm like, I'll probably start teaching material on this as a way to generate more, um, more content for the book Mm -hmm. in between. And also just to get some more examples. So I think the book is sort of going to become a little bit more of a part of the work that I'm doing. Good. Um, yeah. So that's kind of, that's what's next. Awesome. Yeah. Yay. (laughs) Just keep doing it. Yeah. So excited to see where you are in like a year from now. And maybe we can do a follow-up podcast too. You can come on and tell us, you know, how the 90-day challenge is or uh, once you finished it and what benefits came from it. Yeah. It's your new book. So you've been amazing to talk to, Noe. Thank you so much for your time and being so vulnerable and transparent with us. Again, if anyone is wanting to learn about the 90 day money challenge, you can listen to Noe's podcast on Apple podcasts, Spotify. Um, it's called the 90 day money challenge. You can follow him on Instagram where he also shares working through a new belief each day. The handle is Noe Kalfi, N-O-E-K-H-A-L-F-A. We'll see you next time guys.